uh, why don't you join me with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your watch care over us. We thank you for the great gift that we've been given in the freedoms that we have in this country, the lamp that the Statue of Liberty holds at the entrance to the harbor where many, many thousands and millions of people have come to enjoy the freedoms that have made America what it is today. Those freedoms are under stress and strain and we're called to witness to them, but we're also called to witness to the greater freedom that Jesus Christ offers us. And I pray that, uh, that we may faithfully do that and appreciate that freedom in our own lives. I pray these things in your name, amen. amen. So <clears throat> this has been a significant year this last year. Um, many people, the experts, historians, not Adventist evangelists, but others have said something dramatic is happening in our world, is happening in America, right? Would you agree with that? That, that people have been very, very surprised and even shocked at the unfolding of events over the last six months. And as an Adventist, I believe that these events have, have something of a prophetic significance to them. Um, I think we'd have to be blind not to see some level of that. And so um, the, the contrast that we have in our country, you know, whichever, wherever you are politically, I, I'm not into partisan presentations, I talk about principles, uh, not about political parties. Um, whichever side of the political divide you're on, you have to admit that we've entered a new era of greater partisanship and disagreement and separation where we not only have different opinions, but we're now developing different sets of facts, right? That, that there's different news outlets depending on which ideology you're a part of, and those different news outlets report different kinds of facts, different sets of facts. And in a church that's committed to preaching the truth, it's a very disturbing time when no one can seem to agree on basic fundamental things like what a fact is. And this year is also significant for another reason. It's the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago this year, this coming October is the actual date, October 31, Martin Luther uh, hammered up his 95 theses, or at least had them printed in Wittenberg challenging the salvation system of the Church of Rome, challenging the system of indulgences, and sparking what was really the greatest development change in the history of the West. In fact, uh, many historians who don't particularly aren't Christians or believe in uh, 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 the Bible will still acknowledge that the beginning of the modern West was probably somewhere in the early 16th century. They may not choose this date particularly, but it's around this date. And it's because uh, what happened there fundamentally changed our view of how the individual should relate to the church and the state. And I'm gonna get a little more into that uh, in this presentation. But I think part of the reason that we're having this conflict in our country is that we've forgotten our Protestant heritage, right? And we're splitting off to the left and off to the right. Is this mic uh, gonna work for us? Okay. Great. Hide and seek. Well, thank you. So, yeah, that's probably better for you too. So, um, and we have a kind of hardcore skepticism, secularism on the left that wants to overthrow religious freedom. 
And on the right, in increasing response to that, we have a, perhaps an energized religious right that wants to institutionalize the Christian heritage of our country. And both points of view seem to be overlooking what our true Protestant heritage teaches. And I think it's in part, as a historian, it's in part due to the great historical amnesia that's overcome our country, right? Reality television is about personal and um, uh, characters and drama and uh, a level of narcissism that's fascinating to watch but isn't really good for anyone and certainly doesn't tell you about history. It's a good thing that our church is so different and is so united on everything and we're a haven of peace in an otherwise divided world. Oh, you're skeptical about that. Or are we? Or are we? Are we so different from the culture that surrounds us? And that's the sad thing. I don't know what your experience has been over the last year, but for me personally, I've been involved in some discussions in our church. I was on the Theology of Ordination Study Committee over the last two or three years. And it's just been a bit frustrating with the level of division, frankly, that we find in the church. Irrespective of your view on the issue, you have to be discouraged by the intransience that seems to be found on both sides. And we seem to be not, you know, as, as greater divisions appear politically, you'd like to be able to say, but my membership, my citizenship is in the heavenly kingdom and the church, and that's where this haven is. But the haven isn't as much of a haven as we would like, I think, if we're honest, right? We're not as separated as the world. I think we're doing better than they are, but sometimes you wonder how, by how much. And I think that the two issues are not unrelated, right? Is it possible that we also have forgotten something about our Protestant heritage? That we also are being tossed around by the secular ideologies that are pressing from the right and the left? And that if we had a clearer view of our Protestant heritage, that maybe we would find some of these issues more resolvable and maybe we would have a greater unity. And I want to suggest to you that that's the case. And I want to suggest to you that it's very important that we do this because can we really go to a divided world and say we have the solution for your disunity and your fighting because we have such harmony here? Can we honestly say that these days? I'm not sure we can. I'm not saying we shouldn't evangelize and we shouldn't do our best. But honestly, why aren't people streaming into our church more than they are? Because we're really not reflecting the kind of unity and harmony that would attract them, to be, to be perfectly frank with you. So we need to take a long, hard look at our history, and that's what I aim to do over the next three days. And I'm um, going to spend today talking about America and its heritage. And I'm going to be sharing with you some thoughts from my from a brand new book that literally came out last week. In fact, I first put my hands on a copy on Friday. 500 Years of Protest and Liberty from Martin Luther to Modern Civil Rights. And uh, it's based on a, um, I've been writing articles for Liberty Magazine for 25 years about America and Protestantism and history. And I approached them about doing a special version collection of those for the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And then I spent the last six months writing commentary on the latest developments. This goes up to the election of, uh, of Donald Trump. And it basically asks the question, 
you realize that more than 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. And it raises the question as to whether Martin Luther's Reformation, does the arc of that Reformation, the, the line of it, the progress of it, go from Martin Luther to modern civil rights, maybe Martin Luther King Jr. and the, and the growth of civil liberties for minorities and other religious groups, which is one, one possible way of looking at it. Or another way of looking at it is it does it go from Martin Luther to the populism and nationalism of Donald Trump? It's a very fair question that you have to look at history closely to try to find the answer. And that's what I do in this book. And this book is especially written for non-Adventists uh, because it deals, many of the articles were for Liberty Magazine and the stuff that I wrote more recently. I had a non-Adventist audience in mind. It's being advertised in Christianity Today, uh, Sojourners on their websites, on some other non-Adventist but Christian outlets to try to bring the Adventist historic and prophetic perspective to the larger mainstream Christian audience. You know, we're going to have to do that at some point. We do well at talking to ourselves, um, you know, setting our foundations even deeper. But this is a book that uh, it should be available in the ABCs. And um, I was told that a copy was given away earlier today. So it sounds like they have a few in. So look for it there first. I do have some extra copies with me, and, but I'm not going to sell those until they sell all out at the ABC because that's, uh, I want to support their business and their, uh, their shop over there. But if they run out, and I'm also um, um, doing volume discounts on these. If you want to study, have a religious liberty and history study group at your church, I'm going to do 50% off if you buy 10. Uh, so that you can do uh, study groups, and I've got some with me to do that. So I'll, I'll uh, talk about that book here in the next couple of minutes. Tomorrow, I'm going to start on uh, this book, The Reformation and the Remnant, which is also about the Protestant Reformation, but this is written especially for Adventists. What can we learn from the Reformers that will help us be more united in our church, right? There's, there's the, 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 the most extreme voices in a variety of debates, whether it be ordination, or creation or the sanctuary sort of seem to keep everyone's attention, but there's a, a broad, vast, I would call it um, biblically balanced heritage that we have that the loud voices often cause us to overlook. And it's kind of a, a book of Adventist hot potatoes with a wide variety of topics from Sunday laws and last day events uh, ordination, creation, various other things, but looked at through the prism of church history and the reformers and what can they tell us. And I believe that's also at the, um, at the ABC. So without further ado, let's begin talking about this question, how to make America great again. This was a campaign slogan I think we heard, right? And while it was maybe used in a partisan way, Hopefully the general idea is something we can all agree on, right? Don't we want to make America great again? And I think it's, you know, I put again in brackets because I think we need to acknowledge that for some people, some groups of uh, people, America really has never been truly great. Like, when was the golden age of America? Our founding fathers in the Constitution, when we had slavery? America wasn't great if you were an African-American. Then we had the Civil War and that was better, but we had segregation as a legal matter for another hundred years. 
Um, and we've had the conflicts we've had for the last uh, 30 or 40, even after formal segregation ended, and it, it's not ending, is it? Uh, we just had a, a case, a uh, criminal decision that uh, not guilty, young, another young black man shot in his car uh, with no apparent uh, reason for doing so. And whatever your race or nationality, you have to feel badly when these kinds of misunderstandings keep on happening. And they're happening in a certain direction, right? I haven't seen a lot of videos with white young men being shot by police. Uh, very, very rarely happens. So there is something that our society is, is certainly wrestling with. Um, but having said all of that, and we want to acknowledge its flaws and its shortcomings and, and the need for, for greater appreciation for various groups, America has been a relatively great country, right? Which country, if you travel around the world, do people want to immigrate to? They want to come to America, right? Whether they're black, white, yellow, whatever. Yeah, they know about the racism and the stories, but they still want to come here, right? Because we do some things right here. Uh, we've done some things right. The standard of living, the freedom, the, there's, there's plenty of things. Poor people in America live far better than poor people in most other countries, right? We, we have a lot to be thankful for. So, oh, there's a website, uh, liberty500.com, where these books are sold. Like I said, if you're buying single copies, the ABC is your place, but these uh, uh, 10 or more, the mass production ones, you can get at this website if you can't get them from me here. So, in the 19th century, most American historians believed they understood the basis of America's greatness. Um, they said it was based on two things, um, a combination of republicanism and Protestantism. What are those things? Well, republicanism is the idea that a government should be, and Lincoln put it very simply, of the people and by the people and for the people. So a representative democracy. And how do you make sure that the government leaders work on behalf of the people? Well, our constitution created three branches of governments, a separation of powers, uh, checks and balances between the two, an independent judiciary, and then a free press to kind of watch it all. This was all part of what a Republican government, uh, what was meant by a Republican government. And Protestantism? Protestantism was shorthand for the rights of conscience, specifically for religious liberty, but it also extended to the other freedoms that you needed to have if you were going to have true religious freedom. Uh, freedom of association, freedom of speech, uh, freedom from uh, intrusion into your rights, and uh, freedom from being unfairly jailed. All of those flowed from this notion of conscience and a fundamental core set of human values. Ellen White herself said this about republicanism and Protestantism, that republicanism and Protestantism became the fundamental principles of the nation. She's talking about the founding of America, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And she says, whoops, these principles are the secret, the secret of its power and prosperity. Notice two words she uses there, power and prosperity. One is financial and economic. The other, in a sense, is more military and it can defend itself. It can take on the nations of the earth. But notice the order she puts these things in. There's republicanism and Protestantism, and this is what produces prosperity and power. So, if we're wanting to make America great, so uh, American greatness, this potent mix of free government, free people, and free enterprise, 
seemed to carry the day in the 20th century, right? Um, even nations opposed to it, like China, Cuba, the Muslim countries, had to suppress their people to prevent it from spreading, right? What's the Great Wall in China these days? It's not the wall that, they, uh, that you can take pictures on. It's the wall that keeps large parts of the Internet away from their people. And why do they do that? Because they know the power of basically ideas of representative democracy and freedom. The Muslim governments have to do a similar thing. And it's sort of a recognition that this is the idea that has won the day intellectually. And if you don't want it, then you have to suppress it. Um, it was a natural tipping point. In fact, this made one uh, intellectual in the 1990s wrote a book called The End of History, right? That after communism fell, this proves that a liberal democracy, and he didn't mean liberal like the Democratic Party, but liberal as in the classical sense of freedoms and checks and balances, <clears throat> was in fact the best form of government and everyone agreed on it. But then something happened at the end of the second millennium. We had the terrorist attack on 9-11, and we had to respond to that. And we responded to that in ways that weren't entirely consistent with our liberal democratic outlook of constitutional rights. Um, we carried out, we held people in prison for more than a decade without having them see a trial. We did a number of things that when other nations used to do it, we told them, those are not up to the standards of a democratic constitutional government. You need to do better. Then we started doing those things. What happens to our liberal democracy? Now, the Arab Spring happened in 2010. You remember all those uh, people taking to the streets in Cairo and uh, Syria and, and uh, Jordan? Well, we hoped that democracy was going to break out. Maybe this was the delayed response to our invasion of Iraq. But what happened in all of these places it kind of sputtered out and it devolved back into strongman rule. Uh, scholars began to question the very notion of the universality of human rights. Perhaps this notion was just a Western tool of imperialism to impose its outlook and its agenda on the developing world. And as um, under the uh, Obama administration, in fact, we began to lay down mandates on African and South American countries that they adopt our LGBT policies if they were going to receive. So there was some, some possible uh, facts to support that. And then of course there was a renewed populist nationalism in England, Brexit. Um, if you followed that, it was a great surprise to the intellectuals. And then when Donald Trump won here, whatever you think of Donald Trump, he wasn't a huge advocate of, of uh, of checks and balances and divided government and a free press and all the things, all the things that I stated go with a Republican form of government were not things that he was a big fan of, right? Now, maybe there's other ways to solve problems and you know, I'm not gonna say uh, uh, who you shouldn't or shouldn't have voted for at this point, but um, it, it is a step away, at least, from the American view of republicanism. And even more troubling on the Protestant front, Protestantism now, religious freedom, were some remarks that were made uh, during the campaign. You may, in fact, the Adventists got caught up in this. Do you remember? Uh, he went before certain Christian groups and said, I'm going to bring you Christians back into influence, right? Positions of power and authority in this country. There's enough of you that we should do this. 
But did he mean that for all Christians? In fact, you may recall when Ben Carson was uh, challenging him in the Iowa polls, um, he felt the need to point out Ben Carson's questionable heritage, right? He said, I'm a Presbyterian. That's right down the middle of Christianity. But Seventh-day Adventists, I don't know about them, right? So what sort of Christianity is he proposing to, it's going to be mainstream, central, but you religious minorities. Um, and then I think it's the first time that a president has ever promised to keep out a whole religious group from the country. Now I know we have problems with, I'm from England, I was born in England, and we've just had some terrorist attack there. And we need to be careful, and we need to screen people when we bring them in. There's no doubt about those things. But to suggest that 1.4 billion people in the world, uh, the vast majority of who are peaceful citizens and certainly in our country, that we can exclude them all based on their religious identity is really a direct attack on this notion of Protestantism. It's to suggest that Protestantism really is only for Christians. Um, various European nationalist groups play up their Christian identity in Europe being anti-Islamic is a very um, popular political move on the right wing of various European political parties. But I would suggest that, that his view of Christianity in the government has more to do with medieval versions of Christianity, support of centralized power structures in both church and state. And what do you do with unbelievers? They sort of become civil enemies. What in the Middle Ages would happen to unbelievers? We had an inquisition uh, for the internal ones, and we had jihad, not jihad, but a crusades, that's the Western Christian notion of jihad, um, to, uh, to attack uh, foreign lands, unbelievers. Well, these days, we use civil force in other ways, um, travel bans. Uh, of course, I'm not saying we're at the Middle Ages, but the point is we're suddenly beginning, becoming willing to use civil force to defend or support certain groups based on their religious identity. Not a hopeful direction. And I would say that in fact this version of Christendom differs very much from the version of Protestant views of church and state that our country was founded on. Um, what great America is it that we are being promised to return to? You know, various people have talked about America, the great society. That's often associated with um, Lyndon B. Johnson and the reforms of the late 60s, the progressive era in the 1920s. But those aren't, those aren't the things that, um, that, that, that candidate Trump were, was interested in. Um, he seems to actually jump over our constitutional founding, the republicanism and Protestantism, to go back to our colonial founding. Now, you may be familiar with this, that not everyone who first founded America was fully supportive of religious freedom, right? Even the Puritans and the Pilgrims, when they came to Massachusetts, they were interested in religious freedom for themselves, but not so much for others. So if you were a Baptist, you were asked to leave pretty quickly. And in fact, Roger Williams was gonna get sent back to England and he had to uh, flee into the wilderness where he founded Rhode Island. But uh, it was a very difficult uh, task that he undertook. 
Others were less fortunate. Quakers were also ejected from the colony and some of them, they kept coming back. And if they came back uh, in the mid 17th century, a number of Quakers were hanged on Boston Column, Boston Common, uh, solely for their religious beliefs. So in New England, the Puritans, they had a representative form of government. Um, it's interesting, from Calvin, we do seem to get the notion of churches electing their elders to represent and oversee the people, and this translated into forms of government that were the same. So remember what I said about republicanism? Well, republicanism actually has been strongly influenced by the Puritans and the Calvinists, but it just goes to show you can have a democracy without individual rights, right? You have a democracy where the majority, have you heard the tyranny of the majority? So the majority can vote away the rights of the minority. And this is very much what New England was like, right? You had a representative government, but you didn't have a constitutionally limited government. You didn't have individual rights for the people. Uh, in the middle colonies, you actually didn't have much republicanism. You did have some there, but uh, the middle colonies were, uh, and Virginia were royal proprietorships where royal governors oversaw the colonies. And so oddly enough, Trump seems to be choosing the greatness that he's talking about in America from these early colonial examples that the founders of our country, when they created the constitution, actually rejected. When you go to our constitution, uh, they drew the principles of representative government from New England. So you can't say New England didn't have an impact. It did. It was an important one. Uh, the separation of powers, the representative government. But they very consciously chose uh, the religious and civil freedoms of the middle colonies, of Pennsylvania, of Delaware, and Maryland. And I think they would be very surprised uh, at the suggestion that nat national greatness attached to the opposite principles. And in fact, I want to go back and give you a little historical um, story in miniature that I think illustrates how America became great. And it's the story of Pennsylvania. And William Penn actually consciously saw Pennsylvania as implementing these principles and as being an example for a larger nation. William Penn founded Pennsylvania in 1682. Now he wasn't an egomaniac, he didn't name the colony for himself, it was actually named for his father who was a famous British admiral and uh, who the king was indebted to for his service during the war and actually Pennsylvania was given to William Penn as sort of payment for the debt that the king owed his father and uh, so the royal, the British government named it Pennsylvania um, and, but Pennsylvania, but, but William Penn was in charge of writing the laws and he was a Quaker who'd had experience on the continent with some of the dissenting Protestants and he had developed a theological and philosophical belief in the right of individuals to worship God as they were convicted, as they were led by scriptures and as they were led by the light of the spirit internally and government should not impose, coerce or even promote religion. It is the only colony that from the beginning and throughout never raised tax monies to support religious churches or teachers. It is the only colony that from its inception and throughout actually gave Catholics and Jews the ability to worship publicly. Even Maryland that was founded by Catholics soon developed an um, Anglican majority and they removed the rights of Catholics to worship publicly. 
He founded, uh, in a famous statement, he called Pennsylvania the seed of a nation. He envisioned that these principles would guide the larger nation. What were these principles? If you read through the laws, and I, I read through them just as a matter of interest a few months ago, they had an independent judiciary. They had a rule of law and due process. They did, even though they had a royal governor, they had a representative accountable legislature, and the executive was strongly committed to civil rights and liberties of the people. William Penn was only one of the only few founders who actually paid the Native Americans a fair amount for the land that he took from them. The other one who did this was Roger Williams. It's interesting that these were both advocates for religious freedom. The equal treatment of people of all religious beliefs was rooted in Penn's Protestant beliefs about the rights of conscience given by a creator. Now this was very interesting because Pennsylvania was founded several decades after Massachusetts and after New York, uh, but Philadelphia quickly became the largest city in the colonies because what happened, William Penn toured Europe and he spoke to different persecuted groups there, the Moravians and the Huguenots and the Anabaptists, uh, and Catholics in Protestant countries and Jews, and he said, come to Pennsylvania. It doesn't matter what you believe religiously, we will use your talents and your skills and you can be part of our colony. And so they came pouring in, English Quakers and German Moravians, French Huguenots, and soon Philadelphia surpassed both Boston and New York in size and commercial prosperity. Now this was a new thing. Um, it became the largest city in the colonies and by the 1720s it's called the Athens of North America. You know, have you ever wondered why it's Philadelphia where the, the Constitutional Convention and the Declaration of Independence and, well, it is, the, it is like the New York City of its day. It's bigger than New York, it's more important. And it does these things and people realize this because of, not in spite of, but because of the religious freedom that it offers. And this blows a number of collective minds because the theory up until this time is to have a successful country, a politically, socially, militarily strong and unified country, you all need to believe the same thing religiously, right? We're going to be united by our beliefs about God and then we'll move forward. And this is what generated a lot of the persecution and the marginalization to try to stamp out these groups. But here you have Pennsylvania and Philadelphia showing vividly that um, the opposite might be true, that if you offer freedom, that you will in fact grow. And they did. And I don't think it's, uh, it's an accident. The, you know, we, we talk about Roger Williams and, and Rhode Island, and they did have a similar government there, but it was up off on the edge of the colonies, and it was not overly successful for its first few decades. It was viewed as kind of this nutcase extreme uh, place full of anarchists and libertines and it didn't get going for a few decades where Pennsylvania almost immediately prospered. And uh, Jefferson, Madison and many others pointed to Pennsylvania as being the model for what we should do as Americans. Pennsylvania, they say, has got it. And I don't think it's a coincidence that our national constitution was written in Pennsylvania amidst the diversity and prosperity of Penn's experiment. You know, there they were living amidst it, and why not have this reflected in the Constitution? And I believe it was. But a, an important point from this is that um, Pennsylvania's success was not based on its business acumen, 
or its military might. In fact, quite the opposite. The Quakers were pacifists. And for the first few decades, they had problems defending against the Indians because the Quaker assembly refused to authorize money for gunpowder and guns. Um, it was the commercial success and prosperity was caused by the principles of open, accountable government and a principled embrace of religious and ethnic diversity. And I would suggest that some of the ideas been floated around these days is to try to reverse that, right? We're going to become militarily and financially great by constricting people's freedoms and keeping out peoples of, of various religious groups. Well, this is to get it exactly backwards, at least if our history is telling us anything. But I have a question tonight, and because the book is entitled 500 Years of Protest and Liberty, and uh, William Penn is only about 300 years ago, I have to go back a couple of hundred years and explain this story. Where did William Penn get his ideas from, and what were they in particular that caused this commitment to religious freedom? And I'm going back to Martin Luther and his view of the world as he was growing up. Martin Luther grew up in the Middle Ages, in the medieval world, and they had a view of church and state and the individual. It's a little bit small here, so I'm not sure, but I'll describe it to you. There's a T at the top here, and it stands for truth and God. And of course, everybody believed that truth existed and God existed, and it was uh, exhibited in the Bible. And these truths about church and about state were communicated to the leaders of the church in the state on behalf of or to oversee the individual. Okay? Now there's some important features of this chart uh, that the individual is a lowercase i because the individual, most individuals, unless you were a church leader, you didn't play a role in obtaining this truth. You were just kind of the recipient of it. And you had a, sort of a pope, a papal infallibility, and, and cardinals and priests who would mediate right, that truth to you and let you know what you needed to know. And if you fell short of it, or, uh, then you could confess to them and receive forgiveness and salvation. And they mediated all that to you. And it was very similar on the state side, the divine right of kings, the God chose the king, and the king was the state. That's what Louis XIV said. And then he oversaw, and because uh, everyone was member of the church and state, you were baptized as a baby after all, right? You were overseen by this church and the state that would cooperate together to keep this unity of spiritual and civic ideas together. This was the world that Martin Luther uh, is born into. And there's a couple of other important things to notice. In this view of the world, there's no meaningful way to talk about rights. So if, if the fundamental right is liberty of conscience, what is the idea of conscience based on? That, that you believe something, that you have a religious duty to God that conflicts with something the church or the state or both of them together are wanting to do, right? That's, I have to stand for my conscience because somebody's trying to force me to do something else. Well, if in fact you get your religious truths from the church and the state, then how can you disagree with them? How can you stand up against them, right? You can't. So there was no meaningful talks about rights. In fact, the, the word right is used, but the word right in that day and age means the right thing for you to do. 
right? Your right place in society is an individual member of the church, and you have the right to do that which you rightfully do, and the church and the state will tell you what that rightfully to do thing is. So that was a right. It was an objective thing that the church would tell you. It wasn't this, this sense that you, a, a, a personal right. So um, this, was, this was the way, and I capitalized the C because the church was considered the senior partner. You may remember Charlemagne being crowned by the Pope and the, the church is to oversee and be the, and the church had a whole lot of uh, society that would overlook. It ran the marriage courts and, and, and uh, the wills and estates uh, unconfined, and often its members, leaders, couldn't be investigated by the civil state. Uh, it would investigate itself. So Luther came along, and he came up with two or three ideas that you've heard of. Um, <coughs> Sola Scriptura, the authority of Scripture. But what does the authority of Scripture mean if the Pope tells you what the Scripture, how it's to be understood? The authority of Scripture only means something if you can actually read it for yourself and understand it and apply it. So the Sola Scriptura was followed very closely by another doctrine of his called the priesthood of all believers, which is that we didn't have to go through this system of mediation, but that we could learn truths from God directly through prayer, through the Bible, and through Bible study, and apply, and we had the right and the duty to do this, right, and apply it to our lives. And so what Luther did, and uh, he was very clear on this early in his life, that because of this, because of this chart, so this was the revolution of Luther in a diagram. Truth and God still exist at the top, right? But now you've flipped these top bottom, uh, this bottom triangle. Rather than the church and state meeting into the individual, the individual now has direct access to God through prayer and through Bible study. And this is the idea of the priesthood of believers. And so now the church and the state become supporting organizations which are meant to aid and assist the individual in seeking God and seeking truth. And of course, this is very simplified, and there's still the state has a role in punishing crime. This isn't anarchy, right? This, this is representing really a spiritual outlook. And because the individual has a right to God, and here's the, here's the fundamental point. If this really exists, this right and duty to God, then the state can't interfere with this relationship and, and, and require you to do something else. There must be a freedom, and therefore the beginnings of the separation of church and state come about, where the church can provide teachings and counsel, but it can't use the coercive arm of the state to implement it. And Luther actually took this quite seriously early on. He said the magistrate shouldn't decide what heresy is. The magistrate shouldn't decide what books you can read. Uh, that should be left to the individual, and the church should only use persuasion. Well, that didn't last long. After a few years, there were some riots, and the peasants revolted, and he backed away from this vision. But there were some Anabaptists who were first Lutherans, and they kept these ideas alive. And we're going to talk more about the Anabaptists probably on Tuesday. But they transmitted his ideas to the English Baptists, who transmitted them to men like John Milton, and John Locke and Roger Williams, and then we have the story of America and Pennsylvania that we earlier touched on. 
But the, an important point here is that now you suddenly have the concept of rights that become possible because the individual can have knowledge, can have a conscience that isn't based on what the state or the church tell him. Um, and other rights begin to flow from that. Uh, and so the individual I now put as capitalized and the church and the state are both capitalized because they're kind of independent but equal. They're overseeing separate spheres. The, the state is looking after the civil sphere, the temporal sphere of this world. The church is concerned with spiritual and religious things, but neither of them are exercising coercion inappropriately over the individual, except as the individual is harming or, or uh, causing, uh, infringing the rights of others. And if this is true of the church, if papal infallibility is no longer the case, how long was it until uh, people began to question the divine right of kings and that political truths were also given directly to an aristocracy? And I think if you want to understand how the medieval world went from papal infallibility and the divine right of kings to Lincoln's government of the people and by the people and for the people, um, there's the simplest explanation is that this model became implicitly the way that Western Europeans and Britishers and Americans began to think about themselves in relation to church and state. And it took more than decades, it even took centuries, but soon this theory worked itself out into political philosophy and practice and our world changed. Now, I wish that it ended there, but it doesn't. There's one other model I have to share with you because it explains our modern world. This explains how um, our constitution was thought about and put together, but our modern world operates on a somewhat different framework. And it's based on a framework that came out of the Renaissance and the liberal, skeptical, radical enlightenment. And it also has some truth at the top, but it's no longer a capital T, it's a bunch of small lowercase t's. Have you heard the phrase, what's true for you may be true for you, but it's not true for me? Right? This is the most popular thing to say about morality or values or you're welcome to your morality and your values, but don't require them of me, right? Because we only believe now in these lowercase t truths. Uh, Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson tended to believe this, that rights of freedom had to do more with the fact that there were no truths that you could be sure of and therefore you shouldn't implement them. Well, what happens? Who's the greatest threat to this system of lowercase t truths toleration? is people who actually believe that there are moral absolutes and moral truths. And who are those people? Religious people, often Christians. And so Christians, so there's a separation between church and state, but it's based really, rather than on a healthy respect for the two spheres, it's based on a fear that religious people are going to mess up the public square, right? And that organized religion is essentially a bad thing, which Thomas Jefferson believed, and reason is given very, very strong priority over the Bible or special revelation. And so this C is now lowercase, the S is uppercase, because the separation of church and state is based on a hostility towards religion. And you can see various organizations in our society today that run on this kind of philosophy. 
the ACLU, People for the American Way, various left-wing groups are very strong on individual rights, but they tend to be somewhat hostile towards religious groups and religious freedom, and it's because they're largely operating on this model here. Uh, church and state are separate, and the individual is actually, I put him in lower case, because when there are no transcendent absolutes, no moral certainties of any kind, it's not hard for the concerns of the majority to override whatever rights exist of the individual. So you may remember after 9-11 when we began using enhanced interrogation techniques, which we used to call torture, that a number of left-wing academics, including Alan Dershowitz at Harvard, wrote in defense of the use of torture, right? Because if you're gonna keep me safe, then I'm willing to sacrifice a lot of lowercase truths of somebody else to keep me safe. There's no sort of idea of a fundamental image of God in man that is just wrong to torture and you just shouldn't do it uh, because, of, because of the image of God in man. So, in a sense, this skeptical enlightenment becomes the prevailing philosophy in the 20th century and is the philosophy of the elites of the academy of, uh, of mostly of Hollywood and now you understand the three models that define the history of our country right because this isn't just about the first model on the left here is the medieval world right truth and God at the top church and state working together over the individual and that existed in Puritan New England so we had it in America even after the Protestant Reformation. Here's the dissenting Protestant view. Roger Williams, William Penn, John Locke, a healthy separation between church and state. There were still values of truth in the, in the political sphere, moral values of truth that could be enforced. So they weren't, um, they were opposed to slavery on political grounds. They were supportive of the traditional family on civil moral grounds, not just religious grounds. They would be amazed at this LGBT transgender ideology that's overtaking our country in the name of civil rights. But then this goes away, this model, by the beginning of the 20th century, it's this model that's now put into place. There are no truths, there's only a relative outlook. And I would suggest that this model while it was never fully embraced by the popular mind, was really dealt an even more severe blow by the events of 9-11. Uh, uh, you know, after 9-11 happened, people said, this is nonsense, there is truth, there's evil and there's good, and we need to go and beat that evil in the Middle East. And I can remember, I put this chart together within about six months of 9-11 happening, uh, because it, it it came to my mind that in rejecting this model, most Americans didn't understand this model and they, their default was to return to something like this. And you may remember a few months after 9-11, John Ashcroft came to Congress to answer questions about what the government did after 9-11. You may not know this, but there were a couple of thousand people that were rounded up and held for um, at least a couple of months without access to lawyers and their family. I mean, it was, it was uh, very um, unusual. And other things began to happen. Uh, shortly after this, Guantanamo Bay was opened up. 
And so there were legitimate questions about, during times of crisis, how far do you go in changing constitutional rights? And so Congress had called John Ash Ashcroft to come and testify about what was happening and what the trade-off was between security and liberty. And it was right to do. The people were calling the executive branch to account to find out what was happening. And I thought that he was going to come in and say, well, to keep people safe, you know, we had to take these steps and it was justified because of, uh, you know, these threats that existed and we had this evidence. But he didn't begin that way at all. He began by saying, how dare you question the patriotism and the motives that we would have in keeping Americans safe. You need to trust your government to do the right thing. And when something like that is said, which model are we working from here? Right? Is government acting as a servant of the people? Or is government acting as the paternal overseer of the people that you are to trust and just allow them to do their... And, you know, I don't want to pick on John Ashcroft uh, solely or, or, or even fully. He actually did some very impressive things later on in standing up against uh, the people in the administration who wanted to abuse powers even further. And he was in a hospital bed and he refused to sign these documents. And so, but he was part of a mindset that was getting caught up into, trust us, we're the government, uh, did anyone follow um, the Snowden affair? Um, and I don't want to get into the debate about whether he did the right thing or not in releasing the material, but what he released showed the government having an enormous amount of oversight uh, over our information and our documents and our privacy in ways that certainly Congress had not been, that we hadn't been briefed on or uh, the kind of thing that flows very much from this kind of model here. And during our campaign, I would suggest, you know, to be fair, no, uh, no group is entirely over here. Everybody believes in some truths, and no group is entirely over here. We don't have the Inquisition and, the, and, and Crusades yet. But I would say that political parties are kind of bunched along the edges here. And as our polarization increases, we're pushing each other further one way and the other way, and we are forgetting about our Protestant heritage here. See, this group values maximally freedom, right? Liberty and freedom and maybe equality. This group is concerned about morality and security and freedom too, because they feel you can't really have freedom if you don't have some level of security and morality. Um, but what we overlook is that this model in the middle has some of both. It, it, it's a balance where there are truths and there is morality, but there's a separation of church and state, so you have to be very careful about which truths you allow the government to enforce. And spiritual truths and religious discrimination should be off the table entirely. But other truths, moral human truths about nature and about the family, are things that we can discuss and take into account in ways that this, uh, this group has uh, rejected. So in coming to, I, I just have a few minutes left here and I want to allow some times for question and answer, but 
I'm hoping that you see what flows from this. If this is our heritage, and I would say that Adventists understand this a little more than most Americans because of reading the Great Controversy. Ellen White is very clear on these principles of Protestantism and Republicanism. And she says that when America, you see, she doesn't just say there'll be a Sunday law and Protestantism will be overturned. She says that America will repudiate every principle of Republicanism and Protestantism in its constitution. And when that happens, national ruin will shortly follow. So I think as, as American citizens, as American Christian citizens, that we need, to be, we need to care about not just can I keep my Sabbath, but what's happening to the whole system that actually protects my ability to keep the Sabbath. Because if we don't say anything until the Sabbath is directly threatened, well, the whole framework of checks and balances, of, uh, of, of, of press freedoms, of, uh, of a separation of powers and of individual rights that allows us to say anything about the Sabbath will be gone, right? And we won't have borne our testimony, carried our witness, spoken out as we could and as we should have about the tremendous heritage we have as dissenting Protestants in America today who understand something about our heritage that much of our country has forgotten. So that's the, that's, I see a, I see, I have a vision for um, uh, civic engagement with our churches and our church members on these kinds of issues that will lead very easily into more spiritually focused and based discussions, right? Um, so the, uh, tomorrow we'll talk about how these models relate to the beliefs in our church and the development of, of theology in, in the history of Protestantism. Um, but tonight, are there any questions about this as I've set it out, what it means, uh, what we can do as Adventists to try to support and get the word out about the, the middle model? Um, I understand they are being recorded. I've got it here. It'll, yeah, so, madam. What's happening on the university level with, our, with Adventist kids? to help them understand what's happening in all these other universities. You know, do, do they really get that message? Are they? That sort of the, whoops. Uh, that, yeah, like most of our universities are, you know, based very much on this model, right, is, is your point. And I think Christian education, hopefully, most of the time is, is here. But, you know, it's hard not to be influenced by your environment, so sometimes we're more over here, uh, and we struggle to, and tomorrow I'll talk a bit about how sometimes we struggle to, to keep in mind that we have these secular influences that we need to be concerned with. But, um, you know, I, I make these sorts of presentations at the seminary at Andrews, and I, I speak with the people in the history department, and, and the teachers there are generally aware of of this progression and that um, much of what goes on in the name of uh, liberalism today, this is, this is what I would call classic liberalism and this is modern secular liberalism. Mm. 
And so sometimes people think that the word liberal just means bad if you're a Christian, but really classical liberalism, I think, is a kind of uh, secularized version of Protestant beliefs and is a positive thing. But in the last hundred years, it's this liberalism that has developed as the philosophy of, of, of the left that has really become a very anti-God philosophy, essentially. And this becomes not outwardly an anti-God philosophy. It claims to be a very godlike philosophy, but it's, this, is the, this is the structure of the dragon, right? And can this, a good question to ask is, can this structure ever actually come into our church? Right? Sometimes we can become confused both in the state and in the church. So we can, I, we can be more clear on these things at times, but I think we, we, uh, we try to make this clear down at Andrews University anyway. And here. I have a question. Okay. Um, I experience a bit of frustration sometimes when discussing issues related to this. Uh-huh. Uh, when I discovered that many Adventists have a very pessimistic view of the chances of ever reducing that this will happen quickly. Yeah. It's a very negative. It, it, yes. I mean, so <coughs> a tendency for Adventists is to say, the world is going to hell in a handbasket very quickly. Yes. Let's just preach our message and save a few as we can. And, you know, it's, that's why our pioneers are so remarkable because they had a similar outlook on the end of the world. They thought it was coming in their day, and yet they were actively involved in abolition, anti-slavery movements. They actively, Ellen White spoke to her largest audiences in, to promote laws against the use of alcohol. So like, why try to make society a safer place through alcohol if it's just all going, you know, the prophet of the Lord who could be preaching gospel sermons said, no, this time is valuable for me to try to impact the laws of the state. And so I struggle with this a bit as well. How is it that, we, that we're going downhill? And I guess the, yeah, there's two answers, I think. One is, is that by trying to do these things, you're witnessing to principles that the larger community needs to know about. And two, Sometimes people are actually successful in improving things, at least for a short period of time, right? The African-Americans are very glad that slavery is over and that formal discrimination is gone. There's still problems, but it ain't like it used to be. And I think that, you know, and I'm gonna talk more about this in the next day or two, that they had a notion of a moral government of God that was, go was coming, but also that we were working for here and now, and that we actually help people appreciate the coming moral kingdom of God as we sought to bring its principles into play in our world now. And we've lost that to some extent as Adventists and we need to recover it. You all sort of answered part of it. I didn't actually ask the question. Okay. Are you going to go into your vision of some things that we can do to correct this? Which is kind of part of the answer. Some of it will come out in the next couple of days. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, madam. Okay. Oh, Okay, so classical liberalism here in the middle, yeah. So where would you put classical conservatism and conservatism today? Well, classical conservatism actually overlaps with uh, classical liberalism. 
it's very similar. Uh, but the conservatism today is very much, and the kind of, you know, the thing about Donald Trump, fortunately, fortunately he doesn't seem to mean half the things he says, right? That, that's like one of the best things that you think that can be said. And, and he, will often, he will often send out tweets or say things that are like directly in the middle of this model. But then he'll actually operate, <laughs> you know, he, he didn't ban all the Muslims, right? No. He's, he's done a much more selective travel ban from six countries that frankly would be somewhat defensible if it wasn't for all the rhetoric that he put around it. So it's often not what he does that's the problem, it's what he says. And what he, but, the, but this, is the, this is the danger for us uh, as a community, is that what he says is so radical that you would hope that Americans wouldn't support it. But the reality is, is that despite saying these radical things, he's getting support, which indicates that while Donald Trump, you know, look, Donald Trump is really, has this view of the world, let's be honest. He was pro-choice and the way he messes yeah. around and, but he says, hmm, I, there's opportunity here. And he says stuff that's here, even though he's not. But the scary thing is that millions and millions and millions of Americans seem to think that this model is really the way to go forward. But the, the, look, the problem isn't Donald Trump. The problem is Americans who've lost sight of their true constitutional heritage of what dissenting Protestantism was about. And as Adventists, we believe we are heirs of the Protestant Reformation. And part of our message has to be a recovery of this common sense balanced understanding of morality and freedom where conscience can be respected and morality can still be promoted and uh, we can have a society that is civil and works. Okay, so let's turn it around and let's say Oh, I don't think right. Where are we? Well, if Hillary Clinton was president, she would be governing from here, right? Or at least from this edge of here. And we would be facing a different set of problems and threats. One more from the LGBT and transgender, which she would continue to promote and push in ways that... Uh, that but, but prophetically, prophetically, where do we believe that the final problem comes from? Is it a secularist who denies God, or is it a religious zealot who wants to impose worship? And frankly, some people talk about this pendulum swinging back away from Trump, but I'm not sure the pendulum is swinging again. I think this could be the final pathway into events that we've talked about. I'm con I'm, I don't know for absolutely certain, of course, but as a theologian and a historian, this is, is remarkable and a moment for that to happen as we've ever had in our history, that's for sure. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your watch care over us. We are grateful for the heritage that we have received as the faithful reformers lifted high the gospel torch and that torch um, also impacted our world in the kinds of governments that were formed and the freedoms that we enjoy. And as we see the light of understanding about that dimming in our day and age, we pray that um, we can be faithful witnesses, uh, both to the gospel and to the heritage that we've been given. Go with us from here. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, 
or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.